0: We are looking this month at Jesus Christ, the light of the world, and his coming into the world as the light. And we established last week that that is exactly why Christmas shines so brightly. And what I want to do now, in every week from last week, including this week, is to look at various reasons Jesus shines brightly. And so today, to help us kind of get our minds set for what we're about to see, I need you to agree with me and affirm something, that some things in life are are unexplainable. Would you just kind of nod at that? Let me give you some examples of things that are unexplainable. That doesn't mean we can't properly label them or correctly identify them or even at times accurately describe what we know about them, but to fully explain it it just seems like at times words fail us. For instance, gravity is that way. We can label it, identify it, and describe it, but there are times we just can't fully describe it, and scientists would concur on this. In fact, it's one of four forces in the universe. Did you know that gravity is the weakest of the four forces in the universe? And of the four forces, they've been able to identify particles in the other three forces, but when it comes to gravity... They've yet to actually scientifically observe what gravity consists of. In other words, why does it work? They can't give you an answer. Now, they have hypothetically established what they'll call the particle that makes up gravity when they find it. It's called a graviton. Who knew, right? But they've yet to actually find it, so they're kind of ready when they do. And if you just read up about this, you'll find that most scientists, in fact, all of them would concur, it's one of those confounding Humanly unexplainable things that we can describe, label, and identify, and actually enjoy and believe in. But it confounds us still on many levels. I actually personally think conceptions that way. I mean, what is it at this moment that a sperm and an egg collide, we'll call it? And what sparks in that moment to bring forth a human with life and breath and over 200 bones and many organs and reasoning and intellect. And like, how does that happen from, these, from this moment? It's, 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 yeah, you can label it, you can biologically perhaps uh, describe it, but to explain it fully, I think conception leaves you speechless often. Uh, can I be even more transparent with you? I think marriage is that way. We may have a few moans or perhaps laughs in the room. But think about it, two people who perhaps know each other, but not very well, since this incredible hormone happening in their body, they get together and they commit till death do them part and they get to know each other in very intimate ways, all the good and all the bad, and they stick together for decades. That's unexplainable, <laughs> okay? Okay. I think something unexplainable is what Isaiah is pointed to in the sixth verse of his ninth chapter. Go ahead and turn there, would you? And what he's pointing to that's unexplainable is the incarnation. Now, let me just be frank with you. Behind marriage, gravity, conception, and the incarnation is the hand of God. We would all know that vertically. Amen? So we're not saying there isn't a reason or a cause. I'm just saying to you, from a horizontal, finite perspective, it's very difficult sometimes to explain certain things And the incarnation is one of those. And so this morning, you're going to be swimming with me in waters that, at times, um, we're going to feel our mouths and our lungs just engulfed with the waters of the incarnation, and you're going to be left speechless, perhaps even at times without breath. And enjoy those moments when the sovereignty and supernatural wonder of God just envelops you. Christmas is a beautiful time for that to occur. And the incarnation is the beautiful doctrine that that really undergirds a lot of that. It's what Isaiah points to in chapter 9, verse 6. You're turning there, right? You're there. Before we read these two phrases, let me just give you a definition of the incarnation. Here's one of the ways we're going to try to get our hands around it. The incarnation is the doctrine that the second person of the Trinity became a man without giving up his deity. In other words, He was fully human and fully God. The word incarnation is derived from the Latin words infleshing. So that's literally what it means. And so a simpler way to say it would be this. When God became man. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. Here's how Isaiah describes this remarkable truth. In two phrases. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born... To us, a son is given. I'm going to stop there for this morning. We'll examine the rest of these phrases in the coming weeks, even the four names given to this son. We'll examine those and, and delight in the beauty of Jesus. I want to just kind of unpack and unfurl for you the truth of these two phrases because they point to some things. They point both to his humanity and his deity. So can you, with me, when you read these two phrases together... Isaiah 9, 6, together. Ready? Whether you're at home, here in the auditorium, just say these with me. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Let me briefly just kind of unpack these for you. The first phrase, I think, is the phrase that has a lot of natural words, and it points to his humanity. In other words, the idea of a child being born, those are words that imply a natural human process. They imply maturation. They speak to us as something that we can watch occur. It's kind of uh, very natural and very human. And I think there's a reason for that because Isaiah is pointing us to substitution. For sinners to have someone to die in their place, they must have someone who's like them. And so Christ became a man. He became human. He became one of us. This points to Substitution. So this is the first phrase, very natural. You can say it like this. It's kind of horizontal in perspective. This is a view to Christ in his humanity. A child was born. But his next phrase really uses supernatural words, and it has more of a perspective that is vertical. We would see this as as language that appeals and speaks to his divinity. Look with me. He says, to us a son is given. Even the word given there, it's describing God's activity on our behalf in sending his son. And so the words here are very supernatural. They they, they speak to royalty, the idea of a son and heir. And here, of course, this points to uh, the idea of of a savior or satisfaction. Yes, for sinners to have someone die for them, they need someone who's like them to be in their place, a substitute. But a substitute who's just a little better than you is of no value. We need a substitute who is God, who can be our savior, who can be the sacrifice that actually satisfactorily meets the demands of a holy God. And so what's needed is God and that's exactly who Jesus was. He was the son who was given. And so you have humanity and divinity really uh, encapsulated in these two really succinct short phrases that say, again with me, would you read them? For to us a child is born To us, a son is given. There's the incarnation prophesied by Isaiah in just two short phrases, his humanity and his divinity. Now, Isaiah is not the only one to prophesy of this or to speak of this. Luke affirms this in his first chapter. In fact, let me just read some verses over you, can I? Listen to to, to some words in Luke 1, 30 through 36 that actually kind of hearken back to Isaiah. Catch these words. Listen very carefully. Here the angel is talking to Mary. The angel says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Are you catching all the different term, uh, terms and language that sometimes it seems pretty natural, a child to be born. And then it seems very supernatural, Son of the Most High. So Luke really encompasses both. And he says, Mary, the Holy Spirit will conceive in you and what you will give birth to will be the God-man. God among us. This is the moment of incarnation. And this is an important, uh, vital doctrine. And can I say to you, it's not just an important, vital doctrine year-round to us. It's especially important at Christmas because it really gives meaning to this season. And often we plant our feet on surfacy things at Christmas, wouldn't you agree? And I'm here to say we need to continue to revise the holiday favorite we sing. You know that song, don't you? It's the most wonderful time. Right? That's a good song, but it's really not what's gonna fuel you for Christmas. We need to realize the incarnation fuels us and we need to change the song. It's the most doctrinal time. Of the year. Now, I've said this before and I'll keep repeating it because Christmas is a beautifully theological season. Do not root your celebrations in things that, that really have no substance. This is where you can plant your feet that God became a man, the incarnation, and it gives fuel to every bit of your celebration. Now, as we think about the incarnation, often we, we, we think to ourselves, well, you know, uh, help me put my hands around it in ways that that maybe um, aren't just with theological seminary terms. And, and so I'm going to try for a few more moments to, to answer some questions that I think I get every year about the incarnation in order to put some shoe leather on this important doctrine, because I'll not back away from this doctrine and you won't either, our church won't. Man, it, it's fundamental, especially this season. But Is there a way we can understand some things about it that that might give us some shoe leather, some traction in our everyday world? Here are three questions that I get every Christmas season regarding the incarnation, these two phrases in Isaiah. First of all is this question, was he both at the same time? And the answer emphatically is yes. He was fully God and fully man for his full life. Now, I say that to you explicitly because there are some schools of thought, I think of one especially, that would say the opposite. I'll not take time here to go over that. Just listen in on Tuesday's podcast, the Extra Point Podcast Tuesday, and I'll explain more about the school of thought that would deny this and why it's dangerous. And we'll just kind of talk more about that in the podcast. For now, just know the answer is yes, Jesus was fully God and fully man uh, for his full life. Now, There's a word for this, speaking of $10 words. Let me give you one. Uh, It's called, it's the word hypostatic union. And it's actually the theological word or the handle we would use to describe two natures in one person. Hypostatic union. And that's important because that really kind of succinctly states and kind of helps you get your hands around what it is we believe about Jesus the person. He was fully God, fully man in one person, two natures. Now, that does not mean that both natures were always very visible all the time. In fact, I would say that during his 33 years of being a man, of being in the flesh, we'll call it, that his divinity was usually veiled by his humanity. It was hidden, we'll call it. It was always there, but wasn't as apparent. Let me illustrate. Let's say you wanted to buy a, a new sports car. You go down to the local dealer and you say, give me the fastest, nicest red sports car you've got. He pulls it out of the lot and he says, take a test drive. You say, gladly. And you hit the roads and you find the parking lots, you're doing donuts and then you find some dirt roads and then you find some fields and man, you're having a ball. 30, 40 minutes, you are ripping it up in this red convertible, splashing water and mud and burning up the rubber on the tires and you pull into the lot. In a hurry, and you squeal the brakes, and you stop. You hop out, and the dealer says, what have you done to my car? And you say, nothing. I've only added to it. He looks at you funny. What do you mean? He said, oh, the shine that was there, the sheen that you saw, it's still there. It's just underneath all the dirt. And he kind of gets a funny look on his face. He's like, I'm not sure I'm buying this. But you say, oh, I promise. Every bit of the car is still there, he just can't see it as well right now that's a little bit of what the incarnation's like christ in all of his glory came to earth and and the muddiness of humanity the the, the messiness of just life as a as a human yeah it it was on him it's called flesh and he experienced hunger temptation all these things he experienced and so his divinity was somewhat veiled it wasn't taken away it just wasn't as apparent it would be like if i were to bring to you a dark red bottle or a dark green bottle or a dark blue bottle and i'd say hey what's inside and you might say well i don't know is it whiskey is it milk is it water you wouldn't know till i poured it out so let's say i poured it out and it's milk oh The fact that you just saw the milk does not mean that before you saw it was inside, it wasn't milk, right? You just couldn't see it because the bottle was so dark. Again, just an illustration of of how Christ's divinity for 33 years was veiled by his humanity. Now, there is no illustration or analogy that serves the incarnation perfectly, so I'll admit that to you, but I'm trying to give you a little bit of a practical glimpse into what it was like for God to become man. He was fully both for his full life, but there was one that was hidden or veiled for a lot of his life. There was one moment in which his divinity wasn't, though. The transfiguration. In which he, he um, um, there on that mountaintop, his full glory was revealed to Peter, James, and John. And the father spoke. Listen to these words of royalty. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And in that moment, those three saw the, not just the incarnate Christ. They saw the glory of the eternal Christ. And they were literally floored. <laughs> they fell down on their faces. So there were moments when his divinity, in that case, of course, was clearly visible. There were other moments in which through miracles that his divinity peeked through. But the incarnation really is a, a, a a period of time in which his divinity, though fully intact in one person, was somewhat veiled and hidden. And I might even say perhaps um, covered by his humanity. But he was still both at the same time, fully God, fully man for his full life. Another question I get often is this idea of, of, okay, if he's fully God and fully man, then could Jesus have sinned? Because we read in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way like as we, and yet, if he's fully God, uh, you know, how does that work, Todd? Could Jesus have sinned? Well, the answer is no. But even more so, the answer is this, he did not sin. Now, there's a word for this as well. I'm going to give you another big $10 word, okay? When understanding that Christ could not have sinned, we're speaking of the impeccability of Christ. I am in that group that believes in the impeccability of Christ. There are those who believe in the peccability of Christ that he could have sinned. Being in one or the other does not make you better or worse. There are those who believe in the peccability of Christ and they're godly people. I'm not in that group. I believe in the impeccability of Christ as the God man. But that is, we're not at war, okay? I'll say that to you because there's some here who may actually disagree with me and I think that's fine. I don't think you're right, but that's fine if you're wrong, no big deal. But I want to share with you something I'm learning the last couple of years and helping me grow and understanding why Christ could not have sinned and, and how he didn't. And I'm just kind of learning this too. I want to thank uh, Bruce Ware. He's the author of the book, The Man Christ Jesus. And I'd highly recommend you read that during the Christmas season. It really brings a lot of richness to the, to the humanity of Christ. I read it every Christmas and it's just uh, it really brings joy to my heart to read his writing. So, if you want to pick that up, it's a great resource for Christmas. Also, a book that brings some extra insight to this is um, David Mathis's book called "The Christmas We Didn't Expect." He spends several chapters on the humanity of Christ, and, and here's what I think: Where I mean, I've not been, um, what's the word? I've not been spot on enough in explaining why Christ could not have sinned, because sometimes. I would resort to his impeccability and just leave it there like, well, he was God. He couldn't have sinned. And it wouldn't really explain the value of him being tempted in every way and, and his humanity, right? So here's, here's an illustration that, that I think will help us understand that not only do I believe he could not have sinned, he did not sin. And perhaps they are distinctly different things going on. Maybe they're two different questions that we would, if we'd answer them, we would even grow in our spiritual faith. So let me illustrate, because I maintain not only could he not sin, he did not sin, and perhaps they're both distinctly different. Let's say that you were uh, preparing for a math exam, and it was the hardest one of the year. And so you really want to be proficient in math, and so even though the professor says to you, hey, on this math exam, you can use your calculator." You decide, no, I really want to learn the material, I want to be excellent in this field, and so I'm gonna study and be very diligent, I'm gonna work very hard so that I'll pass the test with a 100% and not use the calculator. So you go to the test, you take it, and you get a 100% without using your calculator. Afterwards, your friend says to you, what was your grade? And you say, a 100%. And he says, of course you got 100%. You had a calculator. And you say, but I didn't use it. So my question is this. Could you have gotten less than 100%? No, because you had a calculator. But is the calculator the reason you got 100%? No, it was because you put the work into it. See, there's two different questions. And the reason we say, like, could he have sinned? No, because he was God. But don't forget, he didn't sin because he resisted diligently and lived unto God's will. Does that make sense? I think there's two things going on here. And I appreciate Bruce Ware's just insight into this, that perhaps there's two questions we should ask. Not only did he not sin, but he could not have sinned. Yes, so God's protection, so to speak, this this divine nature consoles us that we don't just have someone who's a little better than us and made it to the end and didn't sin. Good, we're safe. He actually could not have sinned. We have a Savior. We have God among us. Amen. But guess what? No way does that undervalue or undermine his actual life as a human. He resisted temptation. He experienced what we went through. And as a man, he actually diligently uh, endured well. He learned uh, obedience through suffering, Hebrews says. And so both of these matters. And so I say to you with, with joyful confidence Yes, he could not have sinned, and he did not sin either. He was both divine and human. I think this understanding, at least I'm learning even in this current moment, just to appreciate both of these. So keep that in mind, would you? We don't have a savior who's untouched, but neither do we have this savior who's like, well, he barely squeaked by. We have a God man who, and here we just get to unexplainable waters who somehow humanly endured and persevered like you and I, and yet with the guarantee that he would not sin because he was God. So can we just admit we're kind of gasping for air now? The water's in our lungs. We're we're kind of drowning. But hallelujah for these things that are unexplainable, and yet we believe and joyfully rest in them. A third question I get is this. Well, Todd, what does all this matter practically? Like, does the incarnation, I mean, does it meet me at the doorway of, of my home and at my office and make a difference in my life in a shoe leather way? To help answer that question, I'm going to invite Parker to join me. i want to pick his brain a bit on this question. Parker's our church planting resident. He's been here, oh, since about late August, September. And so I thought this would be a good week to give him some exposure to this wonderfully kind crowd yeah, yeah and let I you kind of so. wax eloquently in front of us. No, I'm kidding a little yeah. bit, but I want to give him a chance to kind of share with you things we've chatted about in this topic, and share with you some ways that the incarnation really meets you at the front door of your home. So, so Parker, how would you address this question? Why does this matter practically?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, uh, and I think before even diving into that question, there was a we sang this song a little bit earlier, and it had the phrase, behold him, behold him, behold him, over and over again. And I was thinking about it, and part of an application can be that. It can be Mm. behold him. And like, when you think of the incarnation, you think of deity, you think of humanity, you think of this miracle, this mystery in and of itself. And it's like a diamond where light comes through it one way, and you're looking at it, and you kind of see reflection, and then you twist it, and then light comes through another way, and it looks completely different. And I think that's a part of our application is just like beholding Jesus, seeing him and thinking through this mystery and thinking through the, the miracle uh, of the incarnation, just beholding him over and over again. So that was one thing that came to my mind. Um, another is that this kind of plays out practically because it, it makes Jesus more real, more approachable. That's what I found in my life is that sometimes you think of God as this like distant, you know, being who's far away and it's kind of like sometimes you approach him in prayer but then you you know it's but still kind of holy and, and other. And Jesus being a man helps us realize that he's real. He walked our path with us. I think of a counselor and in that verse actually it says that he is a wonderful counselor. And if you're going through grief or you're going through a a time and you're talking to somebody and you find that the, the lane that you've walked in or the grief that you've walked through, the trials that you've walked through, if you find that somebody else has also walked through that, mm. you immediately are like, oh, I can relate. It's almost like this sense of release, like a relief. Like, I can relate to you. Like, you understand what I'm going through. And I think Jesus being a man does that for us because he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, you know? He walked this life. Um, and so it brings a little practicality to that.
0: And you, you experienced this this past weekend, didn't you? Mm,
1: yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Many of you may not know this, but Parker's father passed away when he was in high school of ALS. Mm-hmm. And uh, just last Thursday, you attended a funeral for one of your good friends whose mm-hmm. father passed away. So you went to the mm-hmm. funeral, mm-hmm. especially to be with your, one of your best friends, because you knew probably more than most there what he was mm-hmm. going through.
1: Yeah. I suspect
0: yeah. that paid off in just your conversation with your friend.
1: Yeah, oh, and even just being there. You mm-hmm. know, I, I walk in and it was just like a, a realization, just the eye contact, and we both break down crying because we're just like, I know what you're feeling, what you're thinking, and it reminds me of that passage in 1 Corinthians, which says, God is the God of comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort those who are in affliction. Yeah. And it's just like, and, and, and Jesus being a man does that, you know. Hebrews also says you haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. How much more, you know, a Christ who, who gave his life for you. So anyway, yeah, that's a good, a good point. The, the third thing I think that makes this really practical is it kind of sets a, a model or a paradigm for our life. So like when you think about um, Jesus becoming a man, you think of, or I think of Philippians 2 where it says Jesus was in the form of God. He didn't consider it a thing to be grasped or the equality of God, didn't it a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself, became obedient to death on a cross, and, and then God exalted him. And that, that model of kind of this self-giving, self-sacrificing mm. for the other in love, like Jesus loved so much, so he gave of himself. I think that's a great model for us to think of when we think of Jesus being a baby, you know, in, in, in human form, in, in a manger, you know? Like, that is just the ultimate picture of self sacrifice. Mm. And so when I think of that, I think of, okay, in what ways am I giving of myself to my neighbor, to my family, to my friends, the people who don't look like me, think like me, act like me. And just that the love that compelled Jesus to give of himself is the same love that ought to compel us to give of ourselves mm. to others. As I hear you explain those
0: practical points, two words came to mind. One is, The incarnation says we should listen to Jesus. And I hope this is heard well. It's as if you're saying, because he lived everything you're living, he has credibility. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that's not the only reason, Mm -hmm. but I'm just trying to put some language to it because we're in unexplainable territory. Remember that, okay? Mm -hmm. But I like what you're saying, That listen to him. He's Mm -hmm. the counselor who who knows. Mm -hmm. And then I hear this word, like, look to him, like, his life, he's more than a model for sure, but his life models the kind of service that we should be willing to give. So we right. listen to him and we look to him. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. what are some ways, like, if, if you're sitting in that chair, mm-hmm. that that kind of model would help us in our own church environment, perhaps?
1: Yeah, I think serve. You say look to him, listen to him. I was trying to think of an L word to keep it going. <laughs> I you like know, that, okay, a good. A good preacher, right? You gotta get the <laughs> alliteration down. But serve, or like give, right? The church I used to work at came from, they have a great practical way to put it. They say, give of your time, talents, and treasure. So in what ways am I serving with my time? What's on, my calendar is what's, your pri- what's on your calendar is what's your priorities. So what ways am I giving of my time to, to my small group, to a serving team here at the church, to whatever it is. What ways am I giving my uh, talents? What has God uniquely gifted each of you with and each, uh, each of us with where we can say, oh, actually I have a, I have a role to play here that I can give and serve and as I listen and look. And then the third is uh, treasure. Right? The Lord has blessed us immensely mm. with, with monetary treasure or just you know, treasures in general. Like, um, and then how can I give of that my time, my talents, my treasure?
0: Mm. You know, I've uh, heard folks say that Philippians 2 is really the picture of when Christ took the escalator down. Mm. And You talk about this trajectory of being mm-hmm. humbled and then being exalted. That's kind mm-hmm. of what you're saying is mm-hmm. that's what we should be able to live like and for. Right, yeah. right. So as you think about these two or three applications you encourage us to make, I know we talked about them in the office and we just were sharing our own learnings. Um, what do they point us to?
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I think ultimately the most explicit and, and, and um, pinnacle of this is that it points us to the cross, right? You mentioned the escalator down. If you trace the, the route of Jesus, I guess you want to call it a route, it goes down and then there's the cross, and then Jesus it was exalted. So it's like this. this you, and it all kind of climaxes there at the cross. That's where, that's where the purpose of the, of, the, uh, of the incarnation is. That's where the purpose of mm-hmm. God's heart. That's where God's heart for humanity is the most explicit. I saying, I love you, I love you, I love Amen. you. Amen. Yeah.
0: Self-sacrificing love mm-hmm. displayed at Calvary. Mm-hmm. So as we were talking through this, we kind of put this together in somewhat of a chart form using Isaiah 9. So kind of take a look at this with us, would you, for a moment? Yes, here's those two phrases, the humanity portion of his substitution, and then, of course, the divinity portion of the satisfaction, and both are necessary, and both are involved in the incarnation, and yet both lead to the crucifixion. Hmm. So you can't have a cradle without a cross. You can't have the cross without a cradle. They are inextricably tied. They both show us the self-sacrificing nature, as you're saying,
1: hmm
0: of the God man to take on flesh and be born and yet to live with the cross of you and to die.
1: Hmm.
0: Any last yeah. thoughts you want to bring to us?
1: Keep behold him. <laughs>
0: Amen. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Yeah. Hey, thank Parker with me. Would you I appreciate your time? Thanks, Parker. <laughs> yeah. So as you think about the, the diagram behind me, as you think about even just these two phrases, let's see if we can just kind of give some Uh, succinctness to what we're learning today to these waters we're kind of navigating that are unexplainable and yet we're trying to describe, define, uh, identify, label the parts that we can know. Here's kind of how I I would say Isaiah, uh, here's what I think he's really pointing to and saying in light of other scriptures too. That Christmas shines brightly because of the humanity and deity of Jesus. And I want to make sure you understand something. Christmas shines brightly because of Jesus. He's the person in which God's plan is pinnacled. Remember that? It's a progressive plan, but it pinnacles in Jesus. So he's the reason Christmas is so, such a bright and radiant season. But there are aspects to Jesus that we're looking at each week. And this week we're seeing that his humanity and deity culminating in one, this incarnating moment. Man, that's a beautiful, shining reason that Christmas means a lot. To God's people. And these two aspects, his humanity and deity, they're really radiant pointers to the reason he came. So again, I just want to say to you, you can't have the cross without the cradle, but neither can you have the cradle without the cross. His humanity and deity are necessary for both because you needed far more. I needed far more than just a substitute. I needed a savior. Because only a Savior can satisfy God's wrath against sin. And in Jesus, we have received both. It's Jesus who who bridges the eternal canyon of mankind. We're separated from God. But Jesus spans the gulf between God and man because he is both. He's the God-man. This is why Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2, 5 They mean so much to me at Christmas. Can can you just hear these words? Listen very carefully. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men. And who is it? church? Say it with me. The man, Christ Jesus. And do you notice the words he uses there in the the last uh, four words of the verse? He calls him a man, so he's declaring, affirming humanity. But he uses the word Christ first to declare and affirm, here's the eternal son of God. And then he says, oh, this one who is human and divine, he's got a name, it's Jesus. And so this Christmas season, and I hope that you will just let the doctrine of the incarnation, man, just give you a beautiful place to root all of your celebration. That God came to man. His name was Jesus, and he's the only mediator between God and man. What comfort it is to know that we have a substitute and a Savior. Amen. I hope you'll turn your eyes to the Lord this morning to help you do that. Can we just meditate on Philippians 2 for a moment? And In fact, here's what I want to do. I want to read this verse over you as well. Parker mentioned it. I'm going to read this verse over you and then I'm just going to let you pray for a bit I want Taylor to sing over us one more time. Just the the, the first few phrases in the chorus of that song, Come Behold Him. What he sang over us in prepping for communion was just perfect for this moment. So, So here's Philippians 2. Now I'll have Taylor come and we'll just kind of sing this while your heads are bowed and then we'll close in prayer. But here's how Paul would describe this whole concept of humanity and divinity in this one moment of incarnation. Paul would say this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in uh, the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's divinity and humanity pointing to the reason he came.
1: We hope you enjoyed
0: today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.